In the air, Srijan takes it! India wins! He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild. And welcome to another World Cup special episode on 81 All Out Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1999 World Cup hosted by the UK. Uh, to talk about the World Cup, I have uh, a very interesting crew today. Uh, we have Surit, a lawyer from Chennai with us. Hi, Surit. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. And we have uh, Krishna, a prominent banker from uh, London. Hi, Krishna. Hi, Mahesh. Thanks for having me on. And we have uh, Arun Sidvi as well. Hi, Sidvi. Hey, Mahesh. Good to be here again. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, let's just uh, start with a little bit of an introduction about, about uh, what you're doing in life at that stage. Uh, what are your personal memories of following the World Cup and any interesting anecdotes? I mean, let's get to the cricket part of it a little later, but let's just talk about our personal lives at that point in time. Uh, Surat, do you want to get started? Sure. Uh, I think I was in 8th standard. I must have just finished 8th standard. I mean, the uh, World Cup started during the summer vacation, I remember. And the great thing about a World Cup in England, I think, is that the timing is almost perfect for anyone who's watching from India because uh, day matches start just after school when school is on. And uh, you can come back and get into the cricket uh, straight away, which uh, I think always uh, sort of is, 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 is great compared to World Cups in some other countries. And, uh, you know, I mean, World Cup cricket for me was something which I often watched uh, with my grandfather. Uh, and uh, I think we, you know, he used to sort of, uh, back then this was pre-internet era in India, and uh, he used to cut out the schedule of the World Cup from the Hindu newspaper, and then we'd sort of uh, have that uh, pasted somewhere and kind of go over that, and uh, uh, it, it was a sort of a mutual thing that uh, we did together. Of course, there was one school reopened, it was something which uh, was a constant sort of source of discussion in school. And I think the timing was just perfect. I mean, you're just beginning ninth standard. You come back from school. This is, uh, I, I couldn't have asked for, uh, and, and I think the World Cup itself, which, I, which as you mentioned, we can come to later. I, I, I think it's probably the, one of the best World Cups, if not the best, barring the final itself. It seemed to have everything about it. And uh, we can discuss that during the course of the podcast. Great. Uh, how about you, Krishna? Well, 99, I was just a year and a half or two years into my first job in life. Uh, so you have to take things a bit more seriously, I guess. Uh, however, the uh, the company I was working for, uh, which was called Bankers Trust, was sold to Deutsche Bank. And for a junior person, you know, there was not that much to do during the change of control, uh, which happened to be May 99, actually. Uh, and, you know, while, while senior people were jostling for position and politics, I managed to make... Uh, you know, two trips to uh, to England during during that World Cup. Uh, so it was a bit of a feast or famine for me because, um, you know, in those days there wasn't Willow TV as as there is now in the US. Uh, you know, TV coverage actually was a lot harder because I lived in uh, in Manhattan, and given the layout of of New York City, you know, you actually had to find uh, a dish that could be on a balcony that's southeast facing. So, so finally, we, uh, a friend of mine who lived on 17th and 3rd, he, uh, we used to duck into his apartments for games when possible. And actually, it was exactly the opposite of what Surit was saying for uh, the timing relative to India. Because in New York, you know, the 10.30 games in England began at 5.30 in the morning. So you could, you know, watch it on weekends. But otherwise, you could probably get an hour or two 
at someone else's house on uh, you know before you 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 head to work right so it's not always easy to uh, to 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 watch tv in those days so it is a bit of a feast of famine for me where uh, you know i the initial trip was uh, the india england game uh, at edgbaston and then i came back actually and was actually you know retrospectively it's it's been a huge privilege right watching having watched uh, the two semis and the final all 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 at the ground so so that's something you know you'll always always remember in life and and there were other things right so the india south africa game um, i went to visit my sister who was in upstate massachusetts at that time through a friend of mine from chennai i found somebody at umass amherst uh, some indian students who got tv and i watched the india south africa game there so it was a bit of a feast of famine but uh, some some fond memories nevertheless so. but what feast man what feast was that i i i would give anything for missing the rest of the world cup and just watching the two semi finals especially the australia south africa no the one at edgbaston was just unforgettable right so so how is it how is it i mean just talk us through the live experience of being at the ground uh, especially during the tense close you know where the game was sort of meandering along right so so australia was i think if i remember 70 odd for four i think when when gilchrist was out actually funnily he was caught at third man slicing Callis if i remember and donald donald took the catch right right in front of us so i remember that quite clearly and uh, then war and bevan sort of meandered on we thought 235 was doable and then pollock and donald finished australia off quickly right looking now 213 you know the asking rate of a run a ball and stuff wasn't wasn't that much right and the way callis and rhodes were batting you could realize australia were coming back into the game you know the, the 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 crowd was actually mostly south african supporters because obviously i think the english uh, you know don't don't root for the aussies right but uh, i was i was in a in a in an area where actually there were it was fairly mixed between south africans and uh, and and aussies so it was it was great fun watching it and absolute wild swinging from kluzner getting them back into the game paul rifles drop catch in the 49th over then those two fours in the run out right it was just just couldn't believe what was happening so did you realize immediately after the the run out that that australia through the finals did you get that sense or actually i i didn't know the rules at that time right on on what the uh, the the rule was for going through on a tie but clearly the way the aussies were celebrating it was almost instantly that uh, all the aussies were supporting the, the stands were just thinking back it just fell silent right for an absolute second because i think the crowd themselves didn't know you know what was going on you had the aussies obviously in a in a tight group celebrating uh, and then it was almost a, a delayed reaction in the crowd right from the aussies there but i i don't think the crowd was crowd was aware of the uh, what the so called tiebreaker was right interestingly there was a, a ricky ponting podcast uh, that i was listening to on uh, sky mm-hmm. sports uh, just a couple of days ago and he says uh, half the australian team didn't know they had gone through he said yeah. they were just they were just thrilled that they got a tie and yeah. uh, half of them knew and half of them didn't know and then he also said that uh, i'm sure the captain didn't know and he apparently with the bat to go to the dressing room and then steve war was just asking around and then he realized that there was another second celebration in the dressing room when half the rest of the team realized okay <laughs> in fact uh, rob smith writes about it in the in that iconic piece that he wrote uh, about that match in the cricket monthly right uh, the crowd you realize there was an absolute silence for about you know 30 40 seconds right <laughs> uh not knowing what happened but then slowly i think 
the way the Aussies behaved, at least it was clear to the crowd what happened and things subsequently. How about the second semi-final? Was that the first time you were watching Shoaib Akhtar live? That was actually the first semi, right? The Aussie one was the second. And actually the Shoaib Akhtar, I was, I was just sort of before this, uh, this podcast, I was sort of thinking back to, to remember some of the, the more personal anecdotes. And we were sitting fairly straight, but, uh, but, but, a little bit at ground level, right? Not not too high up. So you almost sort of four or five, maybe ten rows behind, but but at the at the ground level stand, just to the left of the side screen. And Shoaib Akhtar actually was bowling uh, his second and third spells from that end. Uh, so so running away from us. Uh, so you you're virtually behind him. Obviously the the Pakistani contingent was fairly noisy and Shoaib was riling them up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But just the impact of his run-up and, you know, he was heavily built, but watching it from ground level, still don't forget that, right? And especially that Yorker to Fleming where he came uh, round the wicket and, and, and speared it in. And I think, you know, it took middle or middle and leg, I think. That was quite vivid to, to remember. That, that spell of his, you know, Fleming and uh, I think if I remember either Keynes or, your, or Roger Toss were carrying on. It was, it was muddling on, right? It wasn't. You know, it wasn't a great match. Shoaib's middle spell really uh, probably made, uh, you know, 275 potentially into into something like, you know, 230, 240, right? And then Excellent. it was a non-match after that, right? With Saida not finishing it off. Uh, moving on. What about you, Sidvi? Yeah, so I just uh, finished my 12th standard. And I uh, finished my 12th standard boards. And uh, so like uh, Surit, again, it was a vacation but uh, unlike Surit, you know, this was uh, uh, this. The World Cup was around when uh, the results were announced, and um, this uh, there were two results announced. One was the board exam results itself, and then after that, you had this joint entrance examination for uh, engineering, and uh, that results were announced. And in both, I had pretty much bombed, and uh, bombed as in like not uh, bombed in comparison with my expectations and uh, uh, expectations at home. So there was a bit of somberness uh, personally and uh, feeling like, oh, okay, <laughs> sort of uh, a, a bit of uh, crashing of dreams, so to speak, at that age where you know, you begin to realize that uh, the top colleges are pretty much out of your reach now because you've uh, not really managed much in terms of marks. Uh, so, but, but the World Cup, so at that time, um, watching the World Cup came as a big relief because uh, I could take my mind completely off. Uh, the results and, uh, you know, applying to colleges and knowing which uh, college to, which where to study, what stream to take and things like that. And uh, I also could uh, get away from uh, talking to people about it. So whenever there was no cricket on, you invariably uh, get into conversations of, uh, oh, what are you going to do next? Where are you going to go? What are the chances of you getting into XYZ college? I, I didn't have to do all that while watching the World Cup and the timings were perfect. It could just be in my own bubble. Uh, and I watched uh, a lot of that World Cup. I probably watched more of that World Cup than, uh, definitely more of that World Cup than 96 and 92 because of the timings. And um, perhaps even more of that World Cup than 2003. So yeah, the 99 World Cup, I remember it uh, fondly. The one other thing I remember is that, uh, you know, talking about the board exams, before the board exams, there's a lot of pressure, right? So uh, watching cricket, um, you know, you watch with a lot of guilt because you know that uh, you're uh, taking up uh, study time by watching cricket. So uh, the India-Pakistan series in January 99, um, which included the Chennai and Delhi tests, and Cal- uh, you know I watched with a lot of guilt. And even the Brian Lara innings, uh, Brian Lara series in West Indies, uh, when he scored 153 in Barbados and that double hundred in Kingston, I watched that 
uh, late in the night and all with tremendous guilt because it was very, very close to my exams, <laughs> but I was still watching it. But this World Cup, it was all done and the results were out. Okay, it's, everything's over now. And uh, so I could watch totally guilt-free and nobody was, uh, nobody was even giving me uh, raised eyebrow looks because uh, they all knew that, okay, but what's he going to do anyway? He might as well just watch. So that was the personal recollection from it. Uh, mind. I, I remember it well. I think it was one of the best uh, World Cups. The, the final was disappointing, but otherwise I think uh, I'd put it uh, up pretty up there. So uh, was, there, was there a World Cup that you watched more than even, let's say, 2007 when you were a professional journalist? In absolute terms, no. I mean, I would have definitely watched more of 2007 because I was doing a lot of work. I wasn't in West Indies at that time. I was in um, India, but I was doing a lot of work off TV. I was doing ball-by-ball commentary, uh, bulletin. I was doing reports, match reports, and uh, just other work. So I would have definitely watched more number of um, balls or more minutes of 2007. But, uh, you know, when you're doing work and when you're in that scenario, the number of things that you remember and retain is uh, very, very... Little. So, if you ask me about the 2007 World Cup, I'm pretty blank. Sorry, Silvi. I, I, I would also just think that it's prob- probably less fun, right? I mean, there's so much pressure around the work and you having to fulfill deadlines and whatnot. Whereas, uh, possibly with the 99 World Cup, you could have just sort of watched it stress-free and just watch it for the cricket and nothing else, really. Yeah, yeah. There is, it's, I, well, see, I wouldn't uh, necessarily say it's less fun because when you're actually doing it, like when, when during the match, when you're actually doing a report, writing a report or doing the ball-by-ball commentary, at that uh, particular moment, it is fun. It's a lot of fun because you're immersed in that whole action and you, you're trying to, you know, uh, summon uh, the right words and right phrases to use. And there's a, there's a lot of fun that happens in that moment. But the moment the game finishes, you just uh, instinctively want to forget it because you've, got, you've put in so much into it that you don't really want to think about it, mull about it and um, reflect on what happened. So it's almost like uh, it happens and it's gone. It's, all, it's almost like uh, a, to, in, in, a, in an exam in some way where you just cram, cram, cram. And then at the end of it all, you just want to forget it. You don't want to think about Sir, it anymore. Simply, it's a bit like, it, it's a bit like an exam maybe, but also it's like watching T20, right? Because, you know, there's so much action of fours and sixes and with your ball-by-ball writing that you actually can't reflect on what happened, so to say. <laughs> That's true. I, I mean, T20 even has the constraint of uh, time where uh, things happen. Uh, so much happens in such a short period of time that uh, your brain can't process it beyond a point. Yeah. And, and ball <laughs> by ball is like, like, like a journalist T20, I guess, right? In some ways. It is. It, is, it exactly is. In fact, I, have the, I often compare ball by ball to uh, T20 match reports to one dayers and long form pieces to test matches. So yeah, it yeah. is exactly like that. <laughs> Prem Panikar often talks about doing ball by ball for the, uh, the Jaisuriya 340 match. And, and it's an experience that he till date hasn't forgotten. So that is how, <laughs> how much of the burden it carries for, uh, for the future as well. Mahesh, a couple of, couple of things I wanted to actually, uh, you know, before we get into the, the sort of cricket part of the, of the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Is that I still remember actually when you book a train ticket early in those days in England, uh, and I did this from New York online, uh, the tickets on Virgin Train were actually one pound uh, to Edgebaston and Old Trafford. Uh, I still remember those, right? It was, it was, uh, Euston to Birmingham New Street was, was one pound, the train ticket. Yeah. And, and also it was my first experience of watching white ball cricket in the UK with, with, with loud Indian or with loud subcontinent fans, right? And if, if you're caught in a section, uh, where where they dominate, where cricket is not the most important thing, but 
but but the banter and the and the bugles dominate uh, it's sometimes you wish you were watching it on tv as well it's funny how much uh, i mean i am equally guilty as well of romanticizing this live experience of being at the ground uh, as if it kind of elevates the status of the match even more so i was at the at mcg for the 2015 world cup final and i remember for about an hour it was so blazing hot in the stand it, it was like almost 20% of the ground was so blazing hot that people were finding any kind of shade to stand under even if they have to miss the match or whatever so like for instance there were some celebrities around me like this uh, director balki was there and everybody is like running to shade right so like retrospectively 20 years later they would uh, they would say oh what a fabulous experience i was at mcg for the world cup final yeah but in that heat at the moment you, you are like running away from the event no and and similarly right in in the birmingham india england game you know the game that was split uh, over two days uh, i think when england were 70 odd for three uh, i'd never seen a downpour you know at a cricket match as as heavy as that and we were actually in the rs white stand which is the opposite side to the pavilion and it was completely uncovered so uh, you know you had to sort of uh, huddle under a stand till the rain stops and finally we we ended up coming back to london that evening because you know for some reason we we didn't have you know anywhere to stay in edgbest and nobody expected a reserve day so we just ended up coming back to london and watching the uh, the second day on tv i think that's no. the match with javed akhtar right wasn't it no this uh, is the javed akhtar giving yeah. uh, graham top right yeah. yeah i think the first match of the world cup england sri lanka which uh, you know you were waiting with sort of so much anticipation the whole of april you're spending waiting for may to come and for the world cup to start and then as usual english uh, early summer and uh, there's rain i think hick scored a sort of wonderful uh, 70 odd in the chase uh, i still remember that hick innings distinctly which was uh, uh, i think he finished the chase off with a six uh, actually one 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 thing looking back at that world cup is sort of how average both the english and the indian teams were right if you look at even the indian team you know we had uh, the people who didn't play were Nikhil Chopra and Amai Kurasia right you know probably people even forget they were part of a world cup squad and had no chance to play in the 11 and mohanty uh, of course uh, who azar was uh, speaking up at every given opportunity for whatever reason well mohanty mohanty did get stuart and hick early on in that uh, england england match <laughs> uh, okay let's just discuss uh, the broad themes of this world cup so for instance com- com- compared to the previous world cup 96 which like 92 for instance was let's say the start of a new era colored clothing new rules 15 over restrictions and then 96 kind of took it to the acceleration stage where where it became mainstream and not just martin crow doing it but all captains uh, being alive to the reality but it's uh, 99 seems a very weird uh, sort of a claw back from there where uh, pinchetta kind of went out of the window in fact uh, the f- very first match is such an such a spiritual reversal of what happened in the quarter finals between england and, uh, and sri lanka in the 96 world cup so in every way possible this is the perfect exact pivot to uh, what one day cricket was building up to till then uh, which looking back at it now seems like a great thing because it lent one day cricket the variety that it, it needed and all of a sudden this felt like almost like a mini test match like world cup is is that the sense that some of you uh, had as well or do you, do you share that view or do you have any yeah i think i think looking back even at the way one day cricket is evolved now right especially icc tournaments where you know the pitches are sort of made to order and it's effectively like two and a half t20 games stapled together right so it's actually for 
for for when you look back on the world cup and seen how cricket has evolved since then it's it's you know very positively nostalgic in a way no that is one thing the the uh, looking back let's say 20 years before is is one way of looking at it what i'm saying is like if you look back further to 96 or 92 they were at a, a certain stage where one day cricket was eventually coming to where it, where we are right now but 99 seems like a deviation right it's like 92 96 yeah. and then 90, 99 kind of went back uh, to another era almost yeah it's almost 2003 was the extension of that right rather than 99 yeah 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 i mean in all ways right one in terms of bat ball balance in terms of even the commercialization there's not like there there's no day night match if i'm not wrong uh, and even the the odd uh change in batting order something like pakistan did was not so much to pinch it but rather to uh, to blunt uh, the new ball i suppose I, i i suppose the conditions really made a difference mahesh i mean the the fact that uh, these were played in what we were what was renowned to be typical english conditions where the ball did quite a bit uh, early on you had these you know especially these left arm seamers like mulali and uh, jeff fallet etc who could swing the ball a bit uh, were able to get quite and 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 even other seamers like you had neil johnston i think had a pretty good uh, world cup both for the bat and with the ball and i just think that those kind of sort of you know bowlers were able to produce the kind of results that they did showed that the conditions really were conducive to a, a far more balanced uh, match up between bat and ball so i suppose the going back to the mean so to speak was a product largely of the conditions as opposed to anything else really yeah i mean the i think the use of the uh, duke's ball as well in the uh, early english uh, summer uh, i was just uh, looking at a few uh, stats and uh, just came across this uh, crazy stat which said that uh, this tournament in 99 had six five wicket hauls and uh, wow. the and the 87 92 and 96 world cups all put together had Four, four, five wicket holes. So, ninety-two so, had none, by the way. Oh yeah, ninety-two had none. Ninety-six had, uh, and ninety-six and eighty-seven apparently put together had four. Definitely look back at it as a bowlers' World Cup, and also it's probably the last World Cup. I may be wrong, but it's probably the last World Cup where you saw so many uh, players uh, in uh, jumpers oh. and in full sleeves and uh, all, uh, you know. completely blanketed up when they were playing and uh, after that i think it's pretty much been sun all the way and i, I also think that's partly because they played at some of these venues which were uh, condu- i mean the you know you had these open venues which barely 4000 i mean capacity of 4000 or 5000 there was uh, taunton of course which one of those rare high scoring matches but you had venues like uh, canterbury where with the big lime tree in the middle which was incredibly fascinating uh, back then and uh, you know as someone who had just started to wa- uh, play international cricket captain i think it'd been a year before that and i was just as i was mentioning earlier this big hick fan and uh, i used to often play for worcestershire and uh, so it was amazing to watch a match uh, played at the new road for example which was i think a small ground 4000 or 5000 is this old english ground which barely any capacity and, and and that too i think contributed to the conditions in many ways because uh, it, these weren't ideal odi grounds really you see the other thing is i think you know batting clearly hadn't hadn't evolved to the same extent as it has now with one day cricket and the quality of the bowlers in the 90s right this is almost the culmination of the 90s bowling right because the teams did have the uh, you know the the test match attacks of of the 90s right you had uh, you know pollock and donald you had shoaib and uh, uh, wasib you know wakar didn't play the games or most of the games 
and uh, you know the, the the quality was incredibly good right as well as as helped by sort of some of the pitches and some of the varying weather conditions as well so and you had uh, megra come up with some superb yeah. spell in fact uh, against west indies he just destroyed them and gave australia kept australia in the tournament if they had lost that game they were they were out remember they got that 110 in like 40 overs and ambrose got three in that match and there was ambrose and walsh too as well apart from the others that you mentioned krishna and uh, ambrose had a great match that australia match if i remember the sad thing is the west indies batting just tailed off in that world cup right the bowling sort of had a little bit this was almost the the first of the world cups where the west indies was just a non contender right but they were uh, equal on points with new zealand eventually right in a way i mean first of all they were in a harder group uh, compared yeah. to let's say group a uh, and two uh, it was like i think new zealand qualified on net run rate if i'm not wrong yes new zealand did qualify on net run rate yeah i mean if anything 96 was worse right they they lost to kenya it's only because of the fact that the format was so poor that they could make it to the knockout stage had the format well, been and then and then, and then and then and then didn't make it to the final <laughs> yeah exactly well i agree in terms of uh, that they were in the race till the end but uh, i think uh, of all the uh, world cups i would think that west indian side was one of the most uh, it didn't leave uh, anything back with me like i i don't really have too many fond memories of uh, that west indies uh, team and their performances i i'm a huge west indies fan of course i would uh, remember quite a bit of it but i especially coming after the 99 series uh, just like two months after when uh, lara just uh, walked on water uh, he comes into this series and uh, you you really don't find them i mean they beat uh, they beat uh, scotland they beat uh, uh, you know i think uh, they might have had a good win even against new zealand but uh, i don't remember too much from uh, them in fact the one moment i remember it's just etched in my mind is that megra ball to lara which was probably the ball of the tournament before won got gives mm. but until then that was just a stunning delivery to get up I mean, just clip the top of off that classic megra uh, you know good, just back of a good length and uh, lara also was the kind of batsman who often got out to spectacular deliveries right like he he, <laughs> he, he like with steve war in 96 and uh, with so many other times it just seemed that uh, lara was uh, like and michael vaughn to a certain extent they were the kind of batsmen who would often feel uh, get out to the spectacular ball it's also i think the expansiveness at the point of contact i think uh, players like lara vaughn sachin uh, in the 90s they they had that uh, you know when they played those shots they had that uh, little bit of uh, the expansive technique and so when the ball went through bat and pad it looked spectacular uh, yeah. there was this ball that dale stain bowled to michael vaughn which was absolutely it just looks like one of the greatest balls ever but then you realize that if it had been a, any other batsman uh, it might not have looked so great it is the it is the bat swinging rather than the ball right exactly yeah <laughs> remember the uh, the cronier uh, earpiece incident oh yes, <laughs> yes. i was pretty confused yeah. initially what was happening and uh, i i and uh, at some level i thought oh okay this is like a, a the he's uh, doing a martin crow with some mega innovation and uh, i thought you know cricket is going to go in this direction and uh, players are going to uh, start wearing ear pieces i was imagining all the possibilities until uh, the icc basically said okay stop it <laughs> get over it but it was quite precise icc probably acted well ahead of its time but you know in that first first game against south africa right uh, you know the two things two things come to mind right 
the gangul innings was extremely slow right as he neared his 100 especially and and the second one is i think what changed the momentum if i remember right for when south africa batted was boucher coming in at 3 actually put india off guard i don't think he made more than 20 or 30 but you know he he scored at run a ball at that stage which you know put the indian bowlers a little bit off off sync so to say and then you had uh, a cluzner taking on agarkar right at the end yeah Ro- roads and cluzner roads right at the end roads actually did the initial damage right? i was just yeah, looking Ro- at the scorecard and shrinath went for nearly 60 runs in that match unbelievable in the tournament to go for 60 runs takes a lot right i mean he actually did some of the early damage as well in that match uh, shrinath but uh, and and then got taken for many uh but i i mean i suppose it, despite ganguly's sort of slow innings we had more than enough to uh, which to win that and it was quite disappointing really isn't the to lose that from i think I, i think that that era of indian cricket right was always where i think 2003 you know sort of the world cup changed it a bit or the the lead up to that world cup but but that world cup is is one of those those periods of time where India always fell short on you know crucial games against the likes of New Zealand the likes of South Africa uh you know beating England and Pakistan was more a constant but against a lot of the other teams right Australia New Zealand South Africa in particular India always you know sort of fell short by you know lack of depth i think more than anything else or one bowler going for 60 and you know 250 being chased you know for five or six with three overs to spare kind of thing yeah of course in this world cup you also had the disastrous uh, match against zimbabwe with sachin miss yep. yeah. and, and that that I... was one i remember watching uh, you know on tv in new york actually and robin singh almost uh, you know took them to the end right when 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 the olonga over uh, you know cleaned us up uh, i mean i i have terrible memories of that match i mean srinath i he came and hammered a couple of sixes but uh, it, it was quite easy enough for uh, them to finish it between them shrinath and kumble and then he took this wild swing uh, uh, of olonga which uh, and and got himself bowled and it was just sort of it was so typical really this the kind of irresponsibility of the Uh, lower order then i mean not we, we should probably won it far more convincingly anyway but uh, having gotten that far it was quite uh, it was just a terrible stroke uh, srinaths yeah for me that match was like the uh, true culmination of uh, india's batting in the 90s i mean it uh, and through that watching towards the end of the match the moment nayan mongia got out playing uh, again across the line uh, totally ridiculous shot at that stage a uh, very reminiscent of the ridiculous shot he had played a few months earlier in chennai against pakistan at the moment he got out i didn't care for the equation i knew india are going to lose that match that was just like in i just inherently knew that whatever whoever does anything whoever hits any six any four india will lose that match and then robin singh got out when india needed seven runs 10 balls and and then you had shrinath and kumble and you know how much how much ever you can think of shrinath and kumble in bangalore 99 was a totally different time i mean shrinath was like a, you know totally hit or miss in 99 he would as you said he hit two sixes and then he played like an absolute oh god that shot was like he, i think he needed i think india needed four of eight when he played that shot and it was almost like he was going for glory for no reason he gets that makes uh, goes for that hoik gets bold and prasad has to face one olonga ball before you know kumble can get strike again for the last over and then prasad gets lbw and at the end of it i'm like obviously we lost i knew we'd lose and sachin wasn't even there so but i mean it's not like we would have won with him as well he would have probably made 80 and we would have still lost so it's uh, 
that match is like a true culmination of the 90s indian batting for me well and and that was also a world cup where sachin was you know some games at four some games opening it was a bit all no, over the place because, as well that's right? because in this match when sachin uh, went home uh, for his Sarag dad's death, came back ramesh yeah. played and ramesh did well in this match he scored a 50 i also remember azhar uh, after the match distinct I, I quite distinctly remember i mean he was quite uh, he 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 didn't have a single bad thing to say about the batsman i think he said uh, i think he put the blame squarely on the bowlers if i'm not mistaken he sort of said batsman batted well but uh, bowlers bowled badly we fielded poorly <laughs> well that that was a standard press conference yeah. right we batted well <laughs> my, bowled well fielded well my favorite azza press conferences i'm batting well in the nets <laughs> like when asked what what happened to your form you know why are you not scoring runs he said i don't know i'm batting well in the nets today that that's a bit like today's it's the process not the out Come, right so he was ahead of his time <laughs> he was ahead of his time yeah in so many ways so talking of that zimbabwe game and, and in fact it's a nice segue to talk about the the format that was adopted for this world cup because uh, while stand alone the south africa or a zimbabwe loss was painful enough uh, it left india in a in a deep deep uh, you know like trouble because of the format uh, followed in this world cup So, what's what's your take on the format? Is that is that a fair system, especially given how much '96 format was criticized? In the sense, theoretically, it seemed like a decent decent format, but the moment you have these carryover points, it just changes the equation completely. Yeah, I wasn't uh, for the. I I didn't like that carryover thing because uh, when you have carryovers, you assume that uh, you know that that your go- the team is going to that everyone is going to beat uh, uh, the weak teams. and then the strong teams are going to uh, have a close contest and then so they carry over points but in this case uh, in the india in the india group you just had kenya which was the weak team and every other team was uh, could beat the other one you know on a, a depending on the conditions and on the day so it wasn't really i mean india beat england and sri lanka but still went into the super 6 with uh, zero points so uh, you know had had england and sri lanka done well uh, in other games and had india sri lanka and england got in then india would have gone in with maximum points i don't think it was uh, a sensible way to go about it well and and australia didn't go in with any points right yeah both india and australia didn't go in with any yeah. points the other po- problem with that is that uh, pretty much the first super 6 match ruled one team out right i mean once india lost the first match in the super 6 against australia there was very little probability that they were going to go through to the semi final yeah yeah and and the rest was almost academic right I- i'm saying it also led to uh, australia trying to game the system which they didn't succeed in but it led to uh, that farcical match against uh, west indies the where west they uh, went uh, where they got the target uh, a very low target uh, in 40 plus overs and then tried to uh, get west indies in instead of new zealand of course it didn't work because uh, new zealand ended up uh, winning the other game but even then i'm with everyone on this in the sense of the format being a poor one but i also think that uh, sort of australia going into the super sixes without any uh, carry forward points much like india and sort of going all the way to win the world cup that's kind of what also made this world cup a great one uh, in the sense that uh, uh, i think they started so poorly lost to pakistan to new zealand and then you you, you thought of them not being contenders and then suddenly they're in the super six and and then from there just sort of goes completely unbeaten and then culminate i mean it all culminated with that fantastic final for them and which as much as the final was a poor one i think uh, the sort of australian uh, kind of comeback from where they were in the group stages to how they finished was uh, what in many ways made this world cup i think well i read somewhere that won ahead of that leeds game against south africa the first the first one where uh, steve wogg got that uh, 120 not out won won claims he said in the team meeting the previous night 
that he said Herschel Gibbs almost uh, celebrates before he catches and uh, so make sure it's given out. You know, with Vaughn, you never know what's sort of the truth and what's not, but it was quite amusing. He's there in the Smythe piece, right? Rob, Rob Smythe piece. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I used to think about it as well because Gibbs did that in India when uh, when we played the one-day series in India where he catches that point and then just like, I mean, he doesn't throw up. He just throws sideways and, and walks away as if nothing happened. Uh, so maybe Vaughn was was honest in, in saying that because there was a precedence of him doing that. Uh, on, on that topic, I also want to bring up another thing where uh, I think a little before or after this, MSK Prasad catches Lara like that and uh, he also almost celebrates like that and drops the ball while celebrating. But he still goes ahead and appeals in the umpire, gives him out. It, that brings me to this because I actually think it's a catch. It was a valid catch. I mean, look, uh, if you go back and watch the commentary on it. Uh, and uh, Tony Gregg makes the point, I think, where that you, uh, you could have actually made a case uh, for this being a valid catch. And then uh, David Gower says uh, that the rules stipulate that the catcher should be in control of its release. Now, uh, it, I, I think Gibbs was in control of the release, just that he messed up the actual release. So it's it's not that he couldn't have released it properly had he taken care to release it properly. And that's not the test. So I, I would actually make an argument for this uh, having been a valid catch because it, it was otherwise cleanly caught. He was in control of the ball otherwise. It's just that in releasing it, it slipped out of his hand or whatever. So I, uh, and I, obviously that would have changed the entire character of the World Cup and the entire, whatever followed would have completely likely changed. So, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but I, I would make the case for it having been a valid catch. It boils yes. down to the re- boiled down to the reaction also, I think, because uh, Gibbs immediately after that ha- gave a little deflated look and uh, Klusner, who was the bowler, he just goes down and like he puts his head down and it, it's almost like all the South Africans thought it was a, not a catch. So automatically then, you know, you, uh, I think uh, the uh, umpire and the, and the batsman, obviously, the given batsman was never going to walk. So there was obviously going to be uh, uh, in Australia's favour. But uh, one point though about that uh, Warren thing, other Australian players have also confirmed it. So, uh, it's not uh, something Warren uh, has made up. I'd, I'd be inclined to believe oh, that. So, he did, yeah, so he did say it then. Yeah, okay. I, I, I believe that he actually said it. Even Ponting confirmed that uh, he said. And in fact, Ponting was batting with Steve Waugh when that drop uh, happened. And uh, yeah. Ponting says that uh, immediately after that happened uh, and uh, a ball later or something, the, the two batsmen had a chuckle about Vaughn reminding them of it the previous evening. Pretty prescient, so to say. But I suppose the legend of uh, Waugh having told Gibbs that he's just dropped the World Cup uh, was mere legend and nothing else. Well, I think he. I think I read somewhere that he actually uh, said something to the effect of, "Do you realize you've just cost your team the game?" Yeah. And uh, that then uh, turned into this whole mythical, uh, "Did you you have dropped the World Cup?" Uh, quote. So, in fact, when someone asked Steve Waugh, "Did you say that?" He said, uh, "I didn't, but I would like to own it up or something to that extent." It sounds so good that I would like to own it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But what he did say for sure was when Ganguly dropped his catch in Calcutta, he said, you just dropped the series, mate. When he did. That happened. That, that really happened. <laughs> that uh, one spell, I still remember, right, in uh, in Edgbaston in the second series was just absolutely incredible, right? Within three overs, you know, it just completely turned the game on its head and all three balls were incredible, right? The Cronier, Gibbs, of course, and uh, even the Gary Kirsten one. 
I think Cronio was he... out, not out, right? No, Cronio was ca- caught at slip trying to flick on the onside, right? But I thought it went off the boot or something. At least recently I was reading somewhere as well. I mean, I, I couldn't find the highlights on YouTube. I want to check it again. I couldn't find the highlights on YouTube. For, maybe it's the World Cup season, so they took it off or whatever. Uh, maybe it's the Smythe piece which mentions this. And I also vaguely remembered it. I wanted to go back and check, but I couldn't. Mm. The, the, the Gibbs dismissal was a real beauty. I think it was sort of one of those which drifted in and pitched on leg and hit the uh, top of off stump sort of dream leg spinners dismissal, which, you know, Juan just seems to have conjured up so many times. The Kirsten one, I kind of remember it being a pretty terrible shot. And I, it no, was Kirsten, sort of... Kirsten just swept, he just swept all over it, right? It turned a lot, but he just swept completely uh, all over it. Yeah, it was just sort of an uncharacteristic uh, shot, really, from Kirsten. But, uh, but talking about the Gibbs dismissal, uh, sitting at the ground, did you, did you get a sense of did you have a TV in the ground or something, a screen at the stadium? No, there was, there was no screen. Uh, well, I don't think because from where we were, the, the screen wasn't, wasn't great, even if there was. I actually don't remember whether there was a screen in Edgbaston in 99. Uh, you know, Australia got off to a, you know, Gibbs had three or four boundaries quickly, right? And clearly chasing 213 when you're, you know, 40-odd, uh, going, going motoring uncomfortably. That, that whole thing, I think one came on, if I remember, in the, in the 10th over or something like that, right? 10th, 11th over. You know, those four or five overs, even the Kalinan runout was completely due to the pressure there, right? So effectively, there were four wickets in that, in that first spell of ones. Especially coming and, back on, uh, from a very poor World Cup so far. And it was, it was uh, the same side where he was bowling from the end, we were sitting in. So, so we were watching from, from behind his arm. And, and the whole atmosphere was just, you know, it just silenced. Because, you know, the crowd in general, if you see, uh, it felt like about a 65-35 crowd rooting for, for South Africa, right? So it uh, it did. I was I was a I was much more an Aussie supporter in those days, especially against England and South Africa. I was I was amongst the minority in those in at, at that ground. But nobody could have you know hoped against what Zulu did, right? Even if you were not batting for South Africa, you should have batted for for Klusner. Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. One thing about Klusner though, which I want to bring up, is that uh, the overwhelming narrative uh, obviously is about his uh, hitting and his uh, uh, the way he. Uh, owned that tournament with the bat, but he also had like an amazing tournament with the ball. And uh, every game almost, he came in, uh, took uh, crucial wickets. I mean, I, I see he finished with 17 wickets, which was pretty close to the highest wicket taker in the tournament, which was, uh, I think, Jeff Allett, right? Who finished And with... one, both. Both finished with 20. Yeah, both finished with 20. So here's like a guy who's uh, mm. almost up there in the wickets list. And even that uh, Gibbs drop, I mean, it was the Klusner who bowled that ball to Steve Waugh. And I remember, like, it, I remember thinking at that point of time, I, while watching it, I was like, how much more should this guy do? And I, I, I saw that Klusner expression and it was like that total, he put his uh, hands on his knees and he was looking down. And I'm like, come on, man. I mean, at least for what this guy is doing, uh, you guys have to win this game. And then they didn't. And then... Things only got more intensified in the semi-final with what he did and what ended up happening. So yeah, he was like a he was a force in all ways in that tournament. I mean, uh, people I think uh, recently Crickinfo picked a all-time World Cup eleven, and uh, people were saying Klusner did well only in one World Cup. How can you have him there and all? But he did so well in that World Cup. I, I mean, he was, he's surely a contender. I but I, I do think though that that. Final ball, sort of. I mean, the wicket itself, the run out. I mean, the given the given what happened the previous delivery, where uh, 
Lehman takes a throw and misses from what three yards or so where there was absolutely no single. I just wonder if there was any point in going for that run at all, given that there was still two balls left. And it, it was just a calamitous run all around. And I think on the last, on that ball itself, I think Klusner might well have been at fault uh, more than Donald because I, I can imagine, I mean, even though it was probably Klusner's call, uh, you know, the field was so close, sort of, it, it just seemed like a risky single even otherwise, I think. Yeah, Mark Waugh was hardly, what, five yards behind the baller, right? Virtually. I mean, everyone seems to suggest that it was sort of Donald's fault almost, right? But I but I think on that particular dismissal itself, I, I just don't think there was a single at all. Yeah, and Kalinan has said uh, in an interview that he just wished that uh, when when that Lehman run out, uh, missed run out happened, uh, everyone in the South African dressing room, like uh, almost looking at each other and like trying to uh, say... Uh, Klusner and Donald should slow things down because Australia were trying to just uh, go move on with it. Like uh, all the feelers were coming in, Fleming was getting back quickly to his mark, and Cullinan says the only thing I wish is that you know we had just sent the twelfth man quickly with some water or something in there. And even if the umpires had you know stopped him or something, at least there would have been that little extra time that Klusner would have had to just gather his thoughts and say like, okay. Uh, Three balls left. <laughs> we we have just one run, and all he needed to do was just that get that little bit extra time to to breathe. And Cullinan says, you know, that's one thing that in retrospect we could have done. I think if if the target was like another three runs, I'm sure he would have hit under the boundary comfortably because yeah, it's just that's, one. That, that that's the point. He almost uh, got uh, more classical, right? Because it was one to get. Let's just go back a little bit on the to the Super Six itself. So talking of, talking of Super Six and especially the format, the deficiency of the format, so to say, which left India Australia pretty much a knockout match, although it was a first Super Six match. I remember Imran Khan made this point. I mean. Of course, he had just come off a World Cup and whatever he was saying was gold, right? And he said, applying my cornered uh, Tiger rule, he said, whoever wins this match will go on to win the World Cup. And at that time, because I had this uh, image of Imran Khan being this near godlike figure, I thought, wow, that's a great insight. And because it went on to happen as well, I'm like, man, he knows so much about cricket. Had it not worked out, you would probably not even remember it. The, the stakes were so high in this match that once Australia sort of uh, gained momentum from this, it helped them immensely. In fact, every match they had, they were in a spot of bother and they were able to come out of it. Forget what they did in the group stage, which was bad enough. But in Super 6 itself, uh, I think India match was a, was a thorough victory for them. Against Zimbabwe, also they were in a bit of a spot of bother when uh, Neil Johnson and Murray Goodwin was, uh, were batting and they almost uh, were cruising along against the target run rate. And against South Africa, of course, we know that they were in deep trouble till Steve Waugh pulled them out of it. In fact, with Gibbs helping uh, further as well. So, how yeah. critical or did you sense the importance of the India-Australia match when you were going into it? Oh, sure. I mean, India-Australia was like a semi-final for me. That India-Australia match was like a semi-final, which made it only even more bizarre that uh, Azaruddin chose to field again. I mean, like this, like he had in the semi-final in '96. And I always thought that that Indian team uh, was best batting first, especially with Sachin, uh, you know, uh, I made no sense for that team to even think of chasing. We've already spoken about Zimbabwe and uh, that whole history of India's chasing in the 90s. So that was a bizarre decision for me that he chose to feel. And uh, also that Indian chase was so insipid. I mean, Jadeja got a hundred, but what a what a hundred. I mean, what a forgettable hundred. No, but other than other than Robin Singh and Jadeja, I don't think anybody even reached uh, double digits, right? In that inning. Exactly. Yeah. A very, very forgettable chase throughout. We lost that chase sort of, I think, virtually in the first five, 
to 10 overs i think i mean it was it was just not on yeah megra bowled a good spell uh, he got sachin uh, caught behind i think and uh, yeah and also uh, they scored what 280 plus so in that indian team chasing 280 plus against uh, a solid i mean close a uh, great australian attack i really didn't have hopes i mean i, I would have had much more hopes if india had batted first and scored 250 i'd still have had hopes that maybe you can get um, some quick wickets early on but once india lost the top powder and the 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 rest i mean jadeja and robin singh after a point it seemed like they weren't even going for it they were just like okay let's just salvage some uh, you know maybe run rate points here i think the team just didn't have enough depth to to put it past these guys consistently right australia even new zealand south africa to an extent yeah i mean certainly australia i think i mean despite the fact that uh, they i mean they lost two of those uh, group stage matches i think this australian team was just way too strong for i mean going back to imran khan's comment i think by even if by some miracle india had won that match i don't think they'd have gone on to win the world cup but uh, with australia though you could you got a sense because i mean mark wall was in i think sublime form through most of the world cup uh, he had 80 odd in this match had 100 against uh, zimbabwe and uh, again in the super sixes so and and i think mcgraw was uh, at the top of his game really and won came into the world cup uh, really from the south africa match onwards but uh, they, they were just way too strong i mean with uh, with lehman and 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 steve one bevan of course in the middle order I, I, i just don't see who i mean how this indian team could have uh, won against them barring some sort of uh, miracle and as sidvi said maybe if we had batted first and uh, put in 240 250 somehow and then some sort of scoreboard pressure had built up and we could uh, you know convert that into a win but chasing it, it was just impossible right from the off go and it was odd because in that world cup the matches i mean in the matches we end up winning in the group stage uh, against uh, kenya england and uh, sri lanka we we batted first in all of them and in uh, the, the we lost to zimbabwe chasing and then in that uh, against in the super sixes after this match against pakistan we also batted first and so it really it was bizarre for me that uh, I mean, it, that uh, Azhar would choose to field in that match. I, I, sometimes Azhar just uh, threw you off so much with these decisions. And, at the top. And, and even the New Zealand match in the Super Six, which we lost, it was at least a closely fought match, which in which again we batted first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, in, in those days, I think the only hope of an Indian in the final was whether Venkatraman would umpire or not, right? <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> And, and I, no, he, it was almost you know Shepard Buckner and him were by far streets ahead of anyone else, and it's quite unfortunate and for a for a parochial Tamilian like me, you know, not seeing Venkat in the '96 final and the '98 final was was you know he was undone right if you look at it. I, uh, I, you know, there's there's no way Shepard should have umpired that final ahead of Venkat. Maybe because Pakistan was playing and uh, sort of uh, I, I don't know if that was one of the factors that played into Venkat not uh, umpiring the final because there was one. I mean, Shepard got that big decision of uh, Inzamam wrong as well in the final. I think. Yeah, caught me. Well, I think there's I think there's more reason for Venkat not umpiring the '96 final being a Tamil. You know, '99 I think he should have definitely <laughs> been in the final. Still remember bumping into Steve Buckner on the. on the tube on the way to lords the day before the final one thing i want to talk about though in this uh, world cup i mean we haven't really touched on it but um, one uh, 
really uh, big impression uh, that i had uh, through that world cup and something i loved watching was uh, how pakistan approached their batting and uh, as you said it was totally counterintuitive to uh, 90 uh, compared to 96 i mean they almost went back to 92 again and uh, you know they sent razak at 3 uh, they, they, i think the english press started calling him the pinch blocker instead of the pinch hitter and then um, uh, they they would get to 150 160 in all, consistently in every match they'd get to 150 160 in the 40th over and then in the last 10 overs they would almost invariably get a score at 10 and over and get 250 plus and moin khan i remember he left like he was brilliant throughout that tournament he would come in he'd score like at uh, 200 strike rate 150 strike rate he'd play like some tremendous shots uh, his typical pulls and uh, uh, you know the the sweep pulls and all these uh, shots that he had fours and sixes and then wasim would come in there'd be azhar mahmood uh, i think came in couple of games and he smashed uh, quick runs that was fantastic to watch them and they would do it it was like a formula that they had and they would do it every single game and they of course had the bowling to back that up and i mean they moin khan i think hit donald for a six in that uh, super six match which is one of those as you mentioned one of those sweep sixes almost i mean it was just an incredible shot i remember i mean uh, in the slog overs uh, which got them to sort of that total which ultimately uh, I mean, was unsuccessful, but got them to some sort of respectable total in that match. And uh, I mean, some of the strokes were just unbelievable. Like, I mean, so unorthodox and just not in keeping with the time. I mean, it was uh, it was it was the kind of batting that uh, you wouldn't expect to see against the likes of uh, Donald and Pollock, especially sort of going down on your haunches and trying to. It, 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 it was almost more in tune with the sort of T20. Uh, hitting that we tend to see these days. Ah, that bowling was incredible, right? With uh, Choi Bakram and and Saklen, not let alone Razak and Mahmoodu, Azhar Mahmoodu ch- did chip in with a few here and there. But... Yeah, that was a test bowling lineup. I mean, you know, you would uh, pick that uh, lineup for a test uh, in uh, South Africa or uh, England, probably. Actually, if you look look at the final, if if you if you just look back on it, yes, it was a completely insipid game, but. Uh, you know they lost Anwar early and then sort of pottering along to 60 for two, and finally it was Tom Moody who got that wicket, which then sort of caused the whole slide with Warren and Magra taking wickets. But uh, but but actually it was it was you know similarly they they tried to come out of that hole but never did right with 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 their with their uh, the formula that they had. So Tom Moody got uh, Wasti, did he? No, Ijaz. So no, Magra got Magra got Wasi. That was that amazing uh, walk catch. catch. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, and no. So, so, so it was twenty for two, if I remember. Anwar and uh, Wasi were out. Then uh, Ijaz and Razak took it on to sixty or so. When Modi got uh, one of them, I don't remember which one. It must have been uh, Razak because uh, Vaughn got Ijaz with that uh, great yeah. leg break. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. So Razak was out, out three down at sixty odd. So that that uh, you know, in a way, the the Everybody thinks it's a collapse, but actually it was sixty for two, right? At one stage, and then that Moody wicket caused everything else. I think. Yeah, and and you know, you know, you never know. I mean, again, going back to sort of uh, the Insumam dismissal, it was uh, you know hundred for I don't know ninety for five, hundred for five, whatever it was that where uh, you never know. I mean, like one between one thirty and one eighty, I think could have been a massive difference uh, in terms of how the match might have ultimately panned out, especially given Pakistan's. Uh, Bowling attack. I think 130 was just sort of a washout, but 180. I mean, who knows if if they'd gotten Gilchrist early? 
you never know yeah i think they didn't uh, uh, they if they had followed their formula that they had for the rest of the tournament of just taking it till the 40th over without uh, with keeping wickets in hand you never know they could have got a big total for all you know but i think they went too early and uh, they tried to push things along too early ijaz that uh, was trying to get after warn and uh, they just uh, then ended up uh, collapsing without even finishing you know without even getting a, a competitive total i mean it was really bad poor total for them in the end. yeah but what an amazing catch uh, the makwa catch i think of uh, the vasti's catch i mean just i think that was one of the that's that's one of the pictures that makes uh, the world cup it was one of those that i think uh, he in typical makwa fashion where he makes it look quite easy and look quite simple but uh, the way he took off and sort of i, I don't think many others would have uh, caught it at that stage of uh, you know in 99 i don't think there were possibly a few other slip fielders at the time might have uh, grabbed it but i think just the athleticism and uh, combination of athleticism and soft hands which i think very very few had and and, and marqua was it's a rare gift even now right I, i don't think even now like you can argue about outfielding now that it's gotten better the median standards but i don't think even now a catch like that would be taken frequently and and make it look so easy on top of it as well yeah i actually can't think of any fielders right now who'd uh, take that easily and and with with marqua it almost seemed like uh, he made it look like a routine catch actually because uh, i i think he would have taken it uh, 95 out of 100 times and which, which is what was so amazing about it the final wicket that pakistan lost was also a brilliant catch by ponting and i remember in the break uh, that was also like in a wideish third slip or something and he it was a fantastic ponting catch he dived full length got it one handed but uh, in the break i remember they were comparing the two catches and i'm not sure who the commentator was whether it was uh, tony greg or who it was but they were talking about exactly this about how uh, the ponting catch you can see you can feel the effort in it and you can see and when you finish the catch you feel like oh it's a extremely tough catch but the markwa catch he always makes it look much easier than it is because of the the ease with which he pulls it off yeah i mean he's just taken so many of those right i mean like off one and uh, in in so many of those tests where the balls virtually passed him he just puts his hand out and it and and, and i think that that was sort of markwa playing cricket in whether it was batting or his uh, catching or his outfielding i mean everything just seemed to come so easily to him which that, also meant that catch, that lakshman catch in chennai in that 2001 test oh yeah in mid wicket wow <laughs> no i was about to talk about both in fact lakshman catch in both innings uh, so the second innings is uh, in fact at least that looks a little spectacular because you had to dive far away from uh, where you were standing uh, but even in the first innings where he takes a catch in the third slip if i'm not wrong or second slip was it the lakshman one or sachin one i'm just confusing the two i think it was lakshman and i remember chapley on commentary saying that's an excellent catch like when you watch it live you don't realize it's an excellent catch because it looks he makes it look so ridiculously easy in fact till chapel pointed out i didn't realize how tough that catch was and then you watch it at least the second innings it's easy for anybody like even for people who don't have any background of how good a fielder mark was even if it's some other fielder you can see it's really a spectacular catch but this one standing at slip to make it look so easy was just pure mark work just to kind of speak about the catches of the world cup since uh, sidvi you mentioned uh, ponting's uh, catch as well at the world cup i actually think what i remember distinctly being the catch of the world cup was uh, in the scotland australia match uh, where there was this catch uh, in deep mid wicket which is ponting uh, ponting was taken in deep mid wicket by mike allingham and 
uh, hard as I've tried, I've not been able to kind of find a video of it uh, anywhere on YouTube. Uh, maybe uh, Rob Linda or someone might have a, a clip of the match and might, you know, we can uh, put it up sometime. But I, I, I distinctly remember this because it was sort of, uh, it had the typical Bill, Law, Bill Laurie commentary to it and it was a pull shot by Ponting and this Mike Allingham diving forward uh, in uh, deep mid-wicket and it was sort of this typical Bill Laurie water ripper uh, commentary to it. And I kind of distinctly remember that from the 99 World Cup is one of those memories that I have of the World Cup, but uh, can't find a video of it, sadly. A couple of things more that uh, we have to discuss. The first is uh, uh, Zimbabwe, one of the one of the best teams ever, perhaps. Maybe the best team, best one day, best Zimbabwe one day team ever. And uh, filled with really exciting players throughout, right? Starting with Neil Johnson, through uh, the Flower, uh, Flower and Goodwin. Olonga was very good. I, I loved watching Zimbabwe in that World Cup. I mean, even though they beat India in that, uh, those circumstances, I still, uh, that match against Australia, I was really hoping that Johnson and Goodwin would uh, bat for another 20 minutes, half an hour and uh, chase that. I mean, I think it was 300 plus they were chasing, but they were going so well. They were batting with such fluency. It was really good to watch. Yeah, I think uh, Johnson had a fantastic World Cup as such. I mean, it was sort of after Klusner, he was probably the player of the tournament in many ways, in a sense, because because of his contributions, both with bat and ball, he opened with the bat, uh, made plenty of runs. And I think that, and that 100 was a superb innings, the one uh, in the chase against Australia. He was sort of carving Warren through the covers, kept hitting him through the covers against the, against the spin. And... Uh, uh, that was probably one of the innings of the tournament, really. And I, and, and you're right. I mean, Zimbabwe had a fantastic uh, team. And I was just thinking, going back to my uh, kind of where I began with uh, Hick, uh, it, it, the, the team probably would have been all, even greater if Hick had played for his uh, home country. And, uh, you know, who knows? They might have been a real threat in that uh, 99 World Cup, I think. And even with the ball, there was uh, there was Streak. There was uh, Paul Strang was still around. There was Brandes and Olonga. And Guy Whittle... Uh, had a few reasonable uh, sort of spells where he picked up uh, two or three wickets here and there. And uh, yeah, it was just a really, really good Zimbabwe team. And it's interesting that in that uh, uh, people often talk about uh, Zim- uh, South Africa losing the match against Australia at Leeds and having to you know, play them again in the semi-final. But had South Africa not lost to Zimbabwe in the group stage, then yeah. they would have also avoided Australia in the semi-final. Uh, and that, that, that was a Neil Johnson all the way in that match. I mean, he produced one of the best all-round performances. In, uh, and uh, to beat that South Africa team, I mean, and Johnson, of course, had that South Africa connection. He had played for South Africa A before and all that. But uh, that was uh, quite, a, quite a stunning performance from Zimbabwe. And it's interesting how... Zimbabwe had beaten England in 92 and now they beat, they beat South Africa in 99 and how they could pull out these wins. Uh, but of course, the 99 team was far better than the 92 team. I mean, they could have even gone to the semi-final with uh, one, another good day. There were at least three of these sort of medium-paced all-rounders who had really good World Cups. Uh, Klusner, you mentioned, we've mentioned uh, Johnson and, and Gavin Hamilton of Scotland. Scotland had a disastrous tournament, but uh, he was sort of the one shining light. I think he scored a few runs and picked up a few, quite a few wickets in that World Cup. Interesting. Keynes didn't do much, right? Yeah, I, I don't think Keynes did anything with the bat. Maybe he picked up wickets, but I don't think he had a single innings of uh, substance. 
I think he picked up some wickets. Um, from New Zealand, my memory is more uh, from the batting end is more of uh, uh, Roger Tews. Roger Tews. Yeah, he is, I used yeah. to like Roger Tews. Uh, uh, playing. He had this uh, lovely. Uh, uh, he was like he reminded me a lot of Neil Fairbrother, and uh, I, I liked watching him bat. The way he manipulated the field and always used to uh, get that five to six runs and over. Uh, when it uh, when they were chasing, so he had a very good uh, game sense about it. One more thing that uh, was very important for me, at least from a personal point of view, being a big Rahul Dravid fan, was to watch him through the World Cup. It was uh, I mean he had uh, started becoming a very good one-day player a few months before. I mean India had gone to New Zealand, he had uh, uh, got a hundred there, and uh, he then uh, also had a pretty good run in. Uh, a tournament in that tournament in Sharjah, but uh, the World Cup was really the blossoming of uh, Dravid as a one-day batsman for me. I mean, he those two hundreds, then the fifties, uh, well, fifty against uh, England, fifty against Pakistan. He was like the guy, and at number three in those conditions, I think it was perfect for him. Right, it was the World Cup that uh, he could really come into his own in because uh, he had the technique to combat the new ball. Uh, he could. Uh, uh, Nudge, uh, then push it around for a bit, and then in places like Taunton, he could also go for the big ones. So I, I enjoyed thoroughly enjoyed watching Dravid bat through that tournament. Talking of Taunton, uh, he was the one who really, really accelerates at the beginning, and uh, sort of to, uh, takes uh, quite a bit of time to get going. It's only after he scores a hundred that uh, that he takes off, and unfortunately, by the end of it, uh, it seems like. You know, he was playing second fiddle to the other, and that's how, if you look at the scorecard, you might uh, you might construe it as that. But anybody who saw it uh, that day will know that Dravid was playing on a different planet, and the six yes. that he hit of Murli is something that I'll remember for, for for my life. What a beautiful shot! Yeah, I was just going to mention the six over extra cover ball turning in, and Dravid just sort of extends his arms virtually and just sort of times it uh, over, over extra cover for six. I mean, obviously he was the leading run scorer at the World Cup, and without even India having made the semi-finals, I mean. Just sort of consistent throughout the tournament, and as Sidvi you mentioned, batting steadily, and at the same time, it wasn't sort of this plodding. It wasn't sort of an Abdul Razak kind of approach. He was, it, it, it was just really brilliant one day batting throughout. I think. Well, and actually, optically, Ganguly looks, uh, you know, almost the other way, right? Yes, he made runs in matches, but it was, you know, quite underwhelming, right? The strike rate and you know the sort of. Lack of situational play in some ways. Yeah, he started it here and mastered it in 2003. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but talking about no, Taunton, I mean, Taunton is right. But I think even Bristol, I, I, I love that Bristol innings from Dravid. I mean, of course, the narrative was all about the emotional Sachin return. And fair enough, of course, it was a very important Sachin 100. But I personally loved that Dravid 100 at Bristol. So fluent and, uh, okay, you can make a point that it was Kenya, but... Even then, uh, for a guy who used to struggle to f- uh, find the gaps in the field, he was almost hitting every ball exactly where he wanted in the gap in that inning. There was nothing stopping him from scoring. That's how fluently he was playing. Uh, he was in he was in pretty good one-day batting form throughout the World Cup, uh, especially for like like Sidney mentioned the back backdrop. He was dropped from the one-day team for a while, then he comes back in New Zealand and scores that hundred in topo and. And kind of builds on from there. So this World Cup was was just a real, real uh, good tournament for him. I mean, when you think about Dravid, I mean, you, you the word underrated possibly is not the first thing that comes to your mind. But uh, I think his ODI, I mean, Dravid, the ODI batsman is probably still quite underrated because I think uh, 
I mean, obviously, in this 99 World Cup, batting at three, he had all these great innings. But apart from that, I mean, the general evolution of him as an ODI bat, where there were some innings towards the latter parts of, the, of his career, where batting at five and six, where he was able to accelerate, uh, was able to kind of guide chases. And uh, he, had, he was sort of a batsman transformed after he came back uh, in, into the ODI team. And of course, he filled in as a keeper batsman, no doubt, but I think just as a pure uh, batsman as a, I think is hugely underrated as an ODI batsman. Oh yeah, as a keeper, looking, that I, 145 was a that 145 was the highest score by a keeper batsman, right at that time. Yeah, in, yeah. I think so. it was. until Gilchrist, uh, I think scored 149 in the World Cup final, or maybe somebody else did. But I remember that was a record. Actually, I was just looking at the uh, the runs and the strike rates for this World Cup. And and Dravid sort of scores at 85.5, while Ganguly scores at 81. But I think the variance of Ganguly's strike rate was probably huge. And and he probably milked it in, you know, Taunton and a couple of other games, I think. Versus versus batting much slower in, in some of the sort of games against the uh, the better opposition. No, I think uh, Dravid also had sort of this, uh, the match against South Africa, he, I think, Made a half century, but it was not the quickest of half centuries, but it was sort of very essential given the circumstances of the match and the way in which the pitch was playing, etc. So, probably some of that brought his strike rate down. But on a whole, through the course of the tournament, I, I, I don't think anyone can really sort of question uh, his approach to uh, uh, the, his, his approach to the, his batting at all because uh, it was just smooth throughout. And uh, talking about from, I mean, from a personal perspective, that was around the time uh, in um, you know the late 90s when we uh, uh, in school used to have like major Dravid Ganguly debates, and uh, you know there was a there were clear fra- factions almost a Dravid faction and a Ganguly faction. And one of my big regrets was uh, about this World Cup was that it was when the vacation was on, so I couldn't go to school and actually like tell all these guys that. And actually, like, argue with all these guys and be like, hey, do you at least believe me right now? And <laughs> I was like, damn, man, I'm sitting at home and Dravid is playing so well and I can't even rub it in with all these guys. <laughs> and you, I mean, given it was 12th class, you wouldn't probably meet them again. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't have. I could have called them maybe, but what's the fun in that? You know, you want to actually meet them in person and... Uh, uh, but who knows, they might have still had a case that uh, they would have uh, uh, pulled up some Ganguly innings and said, that, no, 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 that was more important and all that. Who knows? Surely we can't uh, conclude a talk about the 99 World Cup uh, without talking about the Tigers and their great victory at Northampton. <laughs> <laughs> Tigers. That was, I mean, I, I had no idea what the hell was going on in that match. And I, I don't blame anyone to uh, look back at it and think it was fishy. Because uh, it was bizarre. Some of the runouts that were going on there, I'm like, uh, seriously? And Pakistan was so good through that tournament and suddenly they have this match of like absolute shambles of a game. And then Wasim Akram comes later and says, uh, you know, we lost, our brothers. Yeah, we lost our brothers and all that. I'm like, dude, you guys just had the biggest mess up of all. But I guess to be, I mean, for them, they had nothing to lose. They knew they were in the Super 6. They knew they got the points. Bangladesh weren't going to go in anyway, so I guess they're like, okay, whatever. Yeah, that was a very bizarre match. Uh, did you guys? Did you guys watch that? Any of you? Yeah, I did. I did watch it. Yeah. And it was just this sort of such an average. I mean, not even average. Like the Bangladesh team, I think, was the 99 World Cup. There was nobody there. There was I, I, I can't think 
of a single sort of reasonably decent okay player at all you want know, khalid who was mahmood, khalid mahmood fan club to come after you <laughs> <laughs> okay moving on let's talk about great uh, i mean we talked about uh, dravid already but like great batting performances in the world cup uh, that, that like maybe personal favorite for you that you would pick sidney start off i mean i i would definitely pick a dravid innings uh, it would uh, uh, it would be a tough choice to go with uh, which one he had uh, i enjoyed all of them but uh, yeah i think uh, bristol and taunton both uh, i would uh, go with uh, both of them and uh, it was splendid innings i mean he really made made you feel like uh, you know you were vindicated by saying that uh, all those who said that uh, dravid was a average one day player you finally felt that okay he's a very good one day player and he's uh, he's he's arrived so to speak so yeah i i would pick uh, one of them for sure sorit uh so i mean my choices would be between the neil johnson century against australia and the chase but but i would go with the gibbs uh, 100 in the super 6 against uh, super 6 match against uh, australia i think uh, really smooth innings and given the bowling attack that uh, he was up against uh, at pick that i mean gibbs was just a superb batsman to watch i think when in full flow kind of again batting seemed to come pretty easily to him he was such a sweet timer of the ball and the ball just sort of seemed to raise off the plate right i mean whether he was sort of hitting through the covers or square cutting or even kind of even when he was playing against the spinners even against wand there was a sort of sense of confidence to his batting where he'd sweep he'd play these little cheeky paddle sweeps and that for me was probably the innings of the tournament krishna I think it has to be uh, the Steve Waugh 100 in Leeds, right? Uh, against South Africa in that game. Looking back, you know, if, if he and Ponting hadn't, uh, you know, put together that partnership and Waugh then finishing the match off, I think, I think we wouldn't have, uh, you know, the, several of the later results we had. So, it, it had to be. And, you know, the other thing is also you never think of one-day innings and Steve Waugh together in, in sort of the same sentence. you know you clearly think of gilchrist you think of marco you think of ponting many many more but uh, this is probably you know his most important one day innings looking back right yeah true true and then to back it up with another 50 in the semi final as well so good and how about how about the great spells favorite spells well it has to be one right the the second semi uh, there's you know watching it live clearly see unlike you guys who watched a lot of it on tv for me it was you know some some memories very strong some some completely non existent which is why i was totally silent for many parts of the discussion but but the one spell in uh, in edgebaston and that semis has to be on top so that rules out uh, one pick for the other two sorry uh, i mean can we just i don't know maybe go with venki prasad against pakistan just because i mean prasad deserves a bit of credit i think that is a pretty good spell uh, i mean five wickets and there were so many great uh, spells i mean there were people like jeff allert who was the lead wicket taker i think he had a couple of four wicket spells there was alan mulali had a pretty good world cup as well uh but yeah uh, i mean i would have gone for the one semi final one as well but just for the sake of uh, picking an indian let's let's go with uh, venkatesh prasad against uh, in world cups against pakistan venkatesh prasad was always the man right so 96 he <laughs> so 99 he takes care of uh, he gets five wickets and he was he was uh, like somebody was mentioning on twitter uh, venkatesh prasad was uh, chaired off the ground like when when india got the final wicket 
the whole crowd uh, sort of runs in then venkatesh prasad gets chaired off the ground so that was a sight worth watching anyway for me uh, personally i mean i i would have to pick megra against west indies because i was um, really uh, looking forward to that game as a supporter of west indies because if uh, west indies had won that game australia were out and uh, having uh, seen what uh, lara had done in uh, back home in that series uh, the way he had taken on megra um, and all the other bowlers i was uh, hoping for a west indies win and uh, <laughs> amazingly in that match i mean megra did a megra i mean he published a new, uh, there was a newspaper column that uh, was published on the morning of the match where megra basically said that uh, today we are playing west indies and i'm going to get five wickets and i'm going to get lara out and he actually did exactly that and <laughs> and he goes there i mean he had the conditions going for him but he gets 5 for 14 in 8.4 overs i'm just looking at that scorecard and he got lara with uh, one of the balls of the world cup he just destroys that top order he gets them all out like west indies get all out for 110 and i was like and, and that particular point of time was when i started thinking that australia has a serious chance in this world cup because until then they were just all over the place they they were so erratic they hadn't really uh, hit their stride so to speak but just it was like um, in 97 in the ashes when uh, england won the first match at edgbaston and then they go to lords and then megra destroys england and then you pretty much know that it's australia's ashes from now and for me it was the same feeling he just gets into that mode so well oiled so perfect like every ball's pitching where he wants it to it's beating the bat he's getting the edges and you know it's i i that, i remember thinking then okay australia has a really good chance in this world cup and then he goal comes against india and again that crucial match gets the wickets and uh, amazingly i mean uh, uh, won then took over towards the latter stage but i would when i think back to that world cup i mean megra is someone who looms pretty large in my memory well actually if and if and if uh, rifle had taken that catch of magra you know we wouldn't even have had the last over in the semis uh, so that's that's one aspect of uh, that match that doesn't get talked about as much as the other counterfactuals right mm-hmm. uh, what if there were three runs close no doubt another boundary what if uh, donald had run and so many other things but what if rifle had caught right and even to come to that point i mean one is caught and he also bumps it up for a six right without that yeah, it just goes it just goes through his hands yeah yeah so without that it would have been far worse coming into the last over right yeah i mean he actually sort of almost palms it off for a six in the sense that had he just stayed where he was it was a sort of simple sitter really but he kind of i think completely loses track of the ball comes further forward than he ought to have and uh, and then tries to jump up to catch it and then it just palms off his I and mean, it goes possibly through his hands but he sort of gets makes contact with it which then takes it uh, over the ropes for six I, but i just want to make this sort of one point on megra i mean i mean there's obviously a great spell and it, but, but just watching megra over the course of his career i mean for me i just couldn't appreciate his bowling at the time for the reason that he was just so unlikable that i mean and you have these nightmares of uh, india having to play him uh, whether in australia or elsewhere and he was just so, sort of so consistently good all the time and consistently great all the time that it was just sort of difficult to really enjoy him or really like him i mean if even people like warn would have these occasional or poor matches he'd have go through troughs of poor periods i i, I can't think of another bowler like mcgrath through the, i you know possibly ever I, i don't know maybe 
maybe the great West Indian bowlers of Marshall, etc., who might have been as consistently great. But I mean, Ambrose was consistently very, very good, obviously. But but just just can't think of another like McGrath, really. And and what McGrath could also do, apart from being so consistent, was that he could also bowl those Yorkers, right? Which is which is something that you associate with with mercurial Pakistani bowlers. But he could also be. Uh, the wicket-taking enforcer, if he wants to be, although he very rarely chose to be that. Yeah, I, I did think he used the Yorker quite a bit in one days. I mean, especially when he bowled last couple of overs, it was very difficult to get him away even in the slow overs because I mean, he did have that Yorker up his sleeve. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about the the what if scenarios of uh, of alternative history. So, Siddhi, what would what would your pick be? <laughs> My pick would be uh, what if. Uh... Sachin didn't have to go back uh, to India. And uh, what if India had uh, beaten Zimbabwe in that game? They would have gone into the Super 6 with uh, two points. And uh, then never know. Maybe they could have made the, made the semis. Great. Surit? Uh, I think my pick would have probably been... Uh, I mean, it's the easy one in the sense of uh, the Gibbs catch of uh, Steve Warren's Super 6s, which would have then probably taken South Africa through to the final where they'd have played Pakistan and where they'd have lost to Pakistan in the final. And uh, I don't know, maybe we'd have had uh, uh, Wasim lift the trophy and we'd have had a future Prime Minister of Pakistan. Who knows? <laughs> Excellent. Krishna? You know, it, it may be a small thing, right? But but actually, the uh, the rain delay in the England in India-England game at Edgebaston, uh, where we went into a second day and, and England were, you know, Top and Hussein going quite well on that on that first day. If you know whether the game had carried on, you know who knows. But maybe a minor one in the uh, in the scheme of things. But uh, you know, given it's it's not easy to think at short notice, I'll I'll stick out for that. All right, with that we come to the end of our discussion on uh, the '99 World Cup. Uh, uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining us, Surit, uh, and thank you, uh, Krishna, for joining us as well. Thanks always, Sirvik. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyone All Out Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other similar podcast platforms. It would be wonderful if you could leave a rating and a review so that more people can find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at 81 All Out and check out all our previous podcasts and articles on our website, 81allout.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please keep the feedback coming. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. In the air, Srijan takes it! India wins! He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wide.